Hi, this is Daniel White Hodge, and this podcast was brought to you by no one because I'm not sponsored by anyone. So, guess what? It'll just be a regular podcast today. That America is a place where all things are possible. That is some group of people, thousands. Describe as a demon. I hate you, naturally. No, 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 not God bless America, God damn America, that's in the Bible. Welcome to Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Welcome back, welcome back, everyone. How you doing? This is your boy, Daniel White Hodge. Woo-hoo-wee! If you're living in the U.S., and really abroad, too. I mean, it's not just in the U.S., but especially in the U.S., in the era of the Trumpster, you already know that there is some crazy, crazy stuff happening right now. And here's the thing. I mean, the November election for me was like an epiphany moment moment. In the sense that I really felt like, man, all the years of work that I have done working, trying to reconcile white people with black folks and work on all the intercultural competencies, I felt like that election was really a slap in the face. It was a wake up call for me. And so for me, the birth and genesis of this whole podcast was to engage these conversations, faith that is outside the margins, faith that is does not fall into a specific category, but is still seeking out God, that is still engaged with a seriousness, a discipline, if you will, of the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of a higher level and a connection to God. How do we deal with that, right? How do we deal with an environment that is saying you have to be one way, but yet does not allow for a diverse perspective on that. In other words, the winners of wars write the history books. And so the, you know, Eurocentric domination of Christian theology has essentially set a paradigm of really power. And so for me, it's been it's been a journey I mean, really since I was in grad school, you know, for uh, about deconstructing what that means and uh, how my own faith plays out on that. I mean, if you know me, you know, I do. I take my faith seriously. I engage with it. I grow with it. You know, and I know some people like the tangibleness of, you know, the faith journey. Right. Part of those tangible uh, products are, um, uh, you know, going to church. That's a big one. Got to go to church, got to um, pay your tithe, um, got to, you know, got to got to have head knowledge about God there. You know, when people have asked me over and over about, you know, oh, what is your walk with God to look like? I mean, that stuff gets on my nerves so damn much. I get so sick. I mean, I don't even answer people anymore. In fact, I was at a conference uh, in May of 2017 and, you know, we were talking, we were going in about the personhood of God and I was presenting and um, somebody asked me, yeah, but. Where do you stand with God? Is God the king for you? You know, you're like, right. And so people are looking for these spaces. They're not even necessarily interested in like, oh, tell me more about your own faith journey. They just want to know, do we believe the same? Because if we don't, there must be something wrong with you, right? Not that there's anything wrong with me. (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with my own theological canon, my own inquiry, my own exegetical process. There's got to be something wrong with you. So I think, I am so beyond that journey of trying to just fit in or trying to say the right things. And so um, I don't I don't believe, you know, I'm not one that believes in, oh, there's no dumb questions. There's plenty of dumb questions. You come and ask me, oh, where do you stand with God? Yo, if you haven't read my stuff, you haven't hung out with me and you haven't engaged in any of that stuff, that material that's already out there. Don't come ask me them them stupid questions. That's a stupid question. You know, and but because it, because it's rooted in something, right? It's rooted in an understanding of wanting to have a particular position. And if you don't have that same particular position, there is something wrong with you. And so for me, it is about pushing past that and beginning to discover what other possibilities are out there. And so with that, 
I wanted to bring on a good guest, a good friend of mine, Dr. Robin Espinosa. Robin is a, uh, a, a, a friend that I met um, through Sojourners. Uh, Sojourners, the Justice Summit, this is like, I think, uh, June of 2016, late June 2016. Sojourners was putting on a Justice Summit, and I uh, was out in Washington, D.C., and there was a workshop on L- knowing LGBTQ or understanding LGBTQ communities. And I just I wanted to go and I wanted to learn more about, OK, what does it mean to be a cisgendered male and, and you know, and being heterosexual? What does that look like and how can I better lend support and be an ally to the LGBTQ community? And Robin was given that workshop. Um and I love I just from the moment I was just like I ideologically I was like, wow. This person has got their stuff together. And I was like, I've got to get Robin up on campus. So I brought Robin to North Park and we had a great time um, having Robin out and having them talk about just their faith journey and how what does it mean to be a queer Latinx scholar? In an environment that says all of those things are maybe we can get by with Latinx, but dang sure can't get by with you being a queer on top of that, like queer theology. I mean, there was people already tripping on that. I mean, when, I remember when I sent the poster flyer out, people were like, you know, they're sending emails to the provost. What is this about? How does this connect with youth ministry? And I'm like, really? Really? That's but see, that's the problem with conservative ideology and conservative uh, uh, conservative theological construct is that it cannot stand challenged. Well, really, anytime you fall in love with an idea, and we're going to get into this a little bit more here with Dr. Robin, but when you fall in love with an idea, a theology, if you will, the messiness of life, the messiness of people, it, 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 it's too overwhelming. And so, right, it, it, it becomes a sense then of I have to protect this idea. I have to protect this idea. I have to be, I have to feel safe. I have to feel comforted, right? You know, the notions of around, you know, give me liberty or give me death. It's like, you know, this, these ideologies we have fallen in love with, much like the flag. We've fallen in love with the flag rather than understanding what are the bigger principles around it and surrounding that. And so we've gotten caught up with some of these things. And so, um, you know, I was just like, look, man, I, I, I didn't even entertain that, 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 uh, that whole conversation. I was like, I'm, I'm not, I'm just not. <laughs> you can be mad all you want, but I'm not going to have a conversation. How does this relate, connect back to youth ministry? If you don't already know, then there, that you, you, got some, you got some issues on your own side. So Dr. Robin came out. We had an amazing time. Robin came and spoke to our Queer Alliance, our LGBTQ group on campus. And it was a great time. And so I said, I got to get Robin on the podcast because Robin's got some amazing stuff to say. And you're going to hear it. You're going to check it out and see what they have got to say in regards to God, faith, race, gender, and fighting Nazis. (laughs) So without any further ado, let me give you Dr. Robin Espinosa. Hey, folks, welcome back to Profane Faith, your source for all kinds of faith that is just out there on the margins and and in the cuts. Today, I have a special, special guest with me, a good friend of mine. It's it's interesting because I've had a lot of good friends that I've met at AAR and through other networks and and connections. Dr. Robin Espinosa. Doc, thanks for coming on. Thanks, bro. It's good to be here. Oh, my gosh. I'm glad to finally get you um, here. And. Just for the listeners, can you talk a little bit about who you are? What has been like your faith journey thus far? Um, yeah, let's let's start there. Well, you know that's a loaded question, um, <laughs> right? Because yes, as a as a person who is trained as a as a theologian, um, I have a complicated relationship to faith and religion and the church, but. You know, I I can say I can say that the church and faith has played an important role in my life and in my four decades of living on planet Earth. I was born and raised in northern Mexico, the Republic of Texas. All right. I was born to a Mexican woman out of this country and a white father. Hmm. I heavily identify as a Latinx person, as a mestizaje, as a mixed race Latinx. Hmm. Um, I'm a non-binary trans person um, who is masculine of center and... And all of these things, gender and race and sexuality, all of these things have shaped my relationship to faith and values and 
and the work that I do in the public square as a as a theologian. Okay. In, in the public square, so it's a little bit about me. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's no. That's that's a. That's a good chunk. And so how have you been engaging? I've been I follow you on Instagram. And for those of you listening out, you know, I'll put all this stuff in the show notes as well. And whatever website you have or material you have, I would definitely put that out there. Uh, but what are some of the work that you're doing right now? Like what what is what is happening? Because there's so much happening right now. There's so much happening. I mean, so the here, here's the I'm going to spill the tea. Okay? All right. Spill it. Come on. <clears throat> right now, I am recovering from fighting Nazis. Wow. Um, both okay. in Charlottesville and in Berkeley. And um, just got home from really like two months being on the road of fighting white supremacy on the ground and trying to help, you know, trying to help white liberal progressives understand that some of the ways, some of the ways of their being in the world has, has actually contributed to theologies of white supremacy. Hmm. Um, and, and so I've been on the ground, man. I've been moving theology out of the academy into the streets and have been loving, um, talking with Antifa and have been loving the fact that those folks, God bless them, that, that they absorbed the violence that Mm. would have been my body, um, violated with violence in Charlottesville. And so I, you know, past couple of days I've been recovering from mm-hmm. all of that, and I'm heading out today to spend about two months finishing my manuscript on activist theology. Oh, wow. Okay, and so can, can you give us a little preview of what this activist theology looks like and what? Yeah, I mean, I'm real committed to to getting theology into the streets and helping folks understand that that Christianity is not intended to necessarily be something that we internalize and keep to ourselves and, and meditate on, right? Christianity is about resisting empire. It's Mm. about, it's about eradicating poverty. It's about eradicating sexism. And, and if we look to the stories of Jesus, you know, the stories of Jesus, um, and, 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 you know, when I say this, it sounds like I'm being super confessional around Christianity, which is a different conversation. But if we just look <laughs> at the stories of Jesus, yeah, we look and we see stories of compassion and love and resistance and, and togetherness and what Christianity has, has done, it, it has built an empire and, mm. and we call, call that Christendom, right? Yeah. And, and, and my book, Activist Theology, is looking at our current social movements. So Ferguson, Baltimore, Charleston, HB2 in North Carolina, looking at these social movements where we're trying to humanize people, we're trying, where we're trying to live out uh, an ethic that, be- that black lives matter. Hmm. And we're try- I am trying to say, look, theology and ethics is happening in the streets. And mm. and we need to get real serious about aligning our interior life and and our social practices. Yeah, yeah. And well, so this you're right. I mean, so you bring up man, this is this is good. So you bring up a couple of different things that I have uh, questions on. So one for those who might not know, so then what in terms of you said trained as a theologian? What in terms of your own faith lineage? I mean, what do you? What theological can do you pull from? Is there a, a, a mixture? What, what I mean by that is like, for example, like myself, I've, I've made my peace with, you know, the Abrahamic faith and stuff. And so I tend to identify more so f- with Christianity, but I pull from Islam. I pull from uh, uh, Judaism. And so I'm just curious about like where you find yourself these days. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. Um you know, questions of heritage and religious ancestry are so important for us in this country. And, and we often don't have a historical memory to even trace that lineage. Um, I, too, have made my peace with the Abrahamic religions. Um, you know, I, 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 I will often say to people, I will never come out as a Christian because today Christianity equals whiteness and right. it equals white supremacy. Yep. And it equals empire. And so you'll never hear that from my mouth. Um, 
you know, I, I say I'm trained as a Christian social thinker. I'm trained as a Christian theologian. That is all true. I've been deeply formed by the Christian tradition. And so, yes, I pull from that canon. Um, but I also pull from from my ancestors in Mesoamerica and Latin mm. America. And so I pull from Santeria and I pull from um, the wisdom of the Orishas. Um, I also pull from from Judaism mm. and and looking at the Jewishness of Jesus. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I very much um, I mean, this is called syncretism in, in, in theological or religious language. So I'm very much into the syncretism of sort of multiple religious traditions existing at the same time because the very lifeblood in me is one that is deeply mixed with with a variety of traditions and ancestry. So I, I pull from a wide variety of things and and also I'm attentive to the ways in which culture is shaping religious traditions. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and all right. So as we break this down, because this is I love this. I mean, because I know, well, first of all, and foremost, I know me going when I went to seminary, I was taught, you know, that syncretism is like, yeah, that's bad, you know, especially in the evangelical right. world. And so how do you navigate some of those spaces? I mean, we're at a very, you know, this you're on the front lines. I mean, you we're at a very nefarious, evil space when it comes to politics, religion. Um, you know, somebody was saying last night, you know, in, in Alabama, the, the, the one guy who was that Trump didn't support one, but it, I'm just like, well, it wasn't like he was much better. I mean, he's he, right. you know, he's been against LGBTQ rights. He's been talked about how, um, and I'm forgetting his name. Uh, the other guy was Luther strange. strange. Well, not, well, he's he's bad enough. Loser Strange with a name like that, Doctor Strange. But I'm talking about the guy who actually won is just as bad on so many levels. And so that type of toxicity has existed so long within mainline Christianity. Right. How do you navigate some of those spaces? Um, either well, with, I mean, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question, right? I mean, I grew up evangelical. I grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition. Okay, all and, right. And, and I, you know, I, and when it comes down to it, my theology is very, very Baptist. I, I'm a low church person. Um, but I realized in college, I remember walking with a friend of mine named Tim Dunn, and he was studying psychology. And we were having this conversation, and I was in my early 20s. We were having this conversation about how, for a lot of people, faith is born out of a place of fear. Hmm. And, and in my early 20s, I had, I had this awareness that for so many people, they're just scared to go to hell. They're scared of a place of separation in a traditional sense of understanding that Hmm. Um, during that conversation, I realized that doesn't make any sense to me that, that we have built a religious tradition rooted in fear. Hmm. And, and that really began, began the moment where I began to really explore, like move out of, move out of this politics of fear yeah, that that, had, that I had so been socialized into, and I began to explore the world, the world's religions. I began taking classes on comparative religion, because if if I had an awareness that this was motivated by fear, mm-hmm. then what could my training then, as a very young budding theologian, how could I, how could I move into work, which I call now around harm reduction and and doing theology as a form of harm reduction yeah and so you know 20 years ago i was just becoming aware of how much we have scared people into believing in something and i don't ever think religion was designed to be that way right Mm -hmm. religion religion is designed and if you look etymo- etymologically at the word, it's designed to reconnect with the mm. source. Mm. So why have we why have we taught in our churches and in our communities that a fear based theology that theology is killing people? 
That theology is what is creating the theology of white supremacy. That theology is what is breeding the evil and hate that I experienced in Charlottesville. Man, that is, yeah, that, no, that is, that is the real deal. And all right, again, I'm going to, I'm coming back to one question, one thing you brought up, but I do want to talk a little bit about Charlottesville. Um, mainly because I think, so for example, I mean, I teach a lot of undergrads that, um, are just now coming into a space of, oh my gosh, this is really happening. I mean, and for some of them, they've been around, particularly those freshmen who entered. I remember when, you know, when, uh, when Mike Brown was killed, this was, what is it? 2014, I believe. Um, so when that whole thing happened, um, we had a lot of our students in our little, you know, Christian private school that came back and were like, why are people so upset? Like, why don't I don't understand this? And so now those same students are just trying to, like, put this stuff together. And so they're just coming into this space of consciousness, but they've been socialized the other way. Right. It's like, you know, it's like the whole take a knee thing. It's like, well, why are they taking a knee? Why can't they stand for the flag? And right. Here's this meme over and over. Stand for the flag. Kneel for God. And so it's like this patriotistic theology that comes in. I'm curious what was Charlottesville like on, on the ground? I mean, I don't know if you want to, re, you know, rehash any of that stuff. I know that's, that's, you know, that's, that, there's some trauma there. I mean, and myself having been in the uprisings in 92, it's, you know, it, I mean, it took me a while. I mean, even at the 20 year mark, it was like, oh my gosh, there was a documentary yeah. that came out on VH1. And I was like, it took me, it took me a few weeks, almost a month to, you know, to see it. Cause it was all the triggers being pushed. But I don't know if you feel comfortable sharing a little bit about what maybe was happening on the ground and what was going on and, and just some of the, the madness that was sure. happening. Sure. So, you know, Charlottesville um, doesn't have a history of activism. And so in many respects, this, this was, this is what put Charlottesville on the map for activism in many respects, I okay. think. And so you can imagine, you know, a small town, not really having the infrastructure for, for organizing or activism. And, you know, they, they, put their heads together and they sought to they sought to do this and to confront white supremacy head on. And so I was brought in as one of the, you know, five national faith leaders to be a part of the counter protest to fight Nazis. And there as I stood on the corner of Second and Water, it was really apparent to me that energy is a real thing. Like yeah. I don't think we pay attention to energy in the ways that we need to, you could feel the the negative energy. And I mm. look, I'm as rationalistic as the next person. <laughs> I am not a woo woo person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm trained yeah. as a theologian. I'm a philosopher. You know what I'm saying? So like, I believe in logic and 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 rationalism. Yes. Yes. You could feel. You could feel the difference in the. In, on that day in that space. And, and as white supremacist groups would parade down, um, the street, it became very apparent to me this question. Um, I, I really wonder if evil exists Hmm. Hmm. Because I had I had really spent you know the past twenty years or go twenty twenty years or so um, thinking that maybe evil doesn't exist, and so I found myself in this really interesting space of like this is not good. I can feel the negative impact. Is this what evil looks like? Hmm. It, it, is hate and violence? Yeah. Is that what evil looks like? Um, so I, I, I still don't know the answer to that question, but okay. it's a question that I ask myself. Um, but I, you know, I was standing on the corner of second and water holding public witness in my red protest stole with, which I love you know, by the way. Thank you. With black lives matter on one side, the <laughs> resistance fists on the other. I had to go out and get me one. Mine's green, but I had to go out and get yeah. me one. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, shorts and a sleeveless clergy shirt. And I stood there, I was standing there, and Reverend Tracy Blackman was giving an interview on Joy Reid. You can see this on, on the replays. Um, but Nazis came into the intersection of Second at Water, lunged in my direction, 
and Antifa got in between me and the Nazis. And at that point, I was evacuated by my security detail and placed into the press barricade, barricade with state police who were doing nothing. But, um, <laughs> oh, it, no. you know, that was traumatic, right? It was yes. traumatic to see a group of angry white men lunge in my direction and and for a group of Antifa get in between myself, my body, and, and white supremacists and to absorb the violence that was intended for me. Mm. And mm. I know there's lots of discussion uh, around Antifa and whether or not violence is supported in this movement. And and I I will always advocate for nonviolent resistance. Okay. And yeah. and somebody else absorbed the violence that was intended for me. Man. And 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 so I, you know, when I went to, I, so I was summoned out to Berkeley to fight Nazis in, in August when the white supremacists showed up there. And I was up on the sound truck speaking, you know, giving a protest speech from the sound truck with Ben McBride and Michael McBride. And, and W. Kamal Bell was there with me. And I turned around at one point to a sea of Antifa and I raised my fist. And I just said, beloved, mm. because, for, because for me, the, that, that group of people, they, they were protecting me yeah. in, in Charlottesville. And yeah. I wanted, I wanted to name their inherent dignity because for so many people, um, they've really been criticized and yes. yes and and i i wanted to name the inherent dignity of the folks of antifa and and i just kept saying beloved and they returned right they returned to me you know hands in the fist um, ha- um fist in the air and and we connected and there and there was there was a strange moment of of belonging and togetherness mm. in berkeley when it happened but Charlottesville was real bad. I, I mean, I had trouble, trouble sleeping. I had some PTSD. Ugh. I couldn't eat. Um, wow. And and I went, I went from there to Berkeley, to to fight Nazis. Um, and so, you know, the month of August was was full of fighting white supremacy on the ground, and and that's traumatizing. And we need to be aware that. If we are not careful in our theologies and ethics, we could be reinscribing the very things that happened in Charlottesville. I mean, on a on a different level, hmm. right? But but um, we need to be aware of how our ideas are informing our social practices. So it may not show it may not show up or materialize and assault, assault rifles being on the streets and marching. But it could be materialized through policymaking. It could be materialized by the ways in which bodies are surveilled in this country. So I think we need to be real careful around how our ideology are, is shaping our social practices. Yeah, that's interesting that you bring that up. Um, I know you're familiar with Naomi Klein and just some of her work, and she talks about how the 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 potential dangerous pathway of going down when people fall in love with an idea, an ideological structure, right? Rather than looking at people, the community, and right. And she talks about how it 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 is perilous because at the end of the day an idea an ideological structure right in theory it's it's perfect right like well let's have this great utopianistic type of society um and you know and then you add religion into it but then right when life happens people get it then it gets starts to get really messy and then that messiness doesn't add up and so she talks about just how then that of course it means it's very similar to what you're talking about i mean just that leads to violence that leads to i mean to take these people out i mean because I guess it feels like the era that we're in, or part of what it feels like we're in, we're beyond, okay, well, that's your position, you're whatever conservative, you're whatever liberal, you're whatever this. 
to a place of now we got to take these folks out. Like I want to kill them. Right. And I'm, and, and I guess for me is, 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 is someone who's, who's, you know, I'm at four years old, you know, I was first time I was shot at by, by, by white folks. And so I'm trying to figure out like, what does that now mean? And I guess what I'm leading up to, well, two things, one, a theology of violence, which I've brought up here, brought at Greer, had some, some great things to say about that when I had him on. Um, but I'd love to hear your take on that. But I want to go back to something you talked about, about how Christianity is a, a faith of resistance. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, because I don't think we hear that enough. Yeah, so, if I, <laughs> so let, me, let me just address this idea of theology of, of violence in concert with how Christianity can be a faith, a, a, a sort of faithful resistance Beautiful. empire. Um, I think what we have now is, is what I call a public religion of white nationalism Okay. in this country. And, and the liturgy of that public religion of white nationalism mm-hmm. is a culture of violence. Mm. So, so liturgy being the work of the people, right? The work that actually happens in the world, liturgy, is a culture of violence. So then our theologies and ethics, our ideas and practices, um, perpetuate this violence. Mm. So <clears throat> I would very much, I mean, Broderick is a dear friend of mine, um, a brother from another mother, and <laughs> and you know, he and I, he and I agree on a lot. And, and, and I, you know, I would say very much that if we don't dismantle the public religion of white nationalism, we will not dismantle the culture of violence that is killing black and brown bodies. Mm. Now, with regard to how Christianity can be a religion of resistance or a spirituality of resistance, it, it's going to take reimagining leadership in this world. Okay. It's gonna, yeah. it's gonna take, it's gonna take us sitting down and reimagining what it means to be a leader, because if you look at Jesus, the the stories of Jesus, and the ways in which he outfoxed the empire, yeah, he didn't capitulate to the empire. We we don't have that story of Christianity. That that's not what we practice, right? We. We practice a very respectable orientation to religion and Christianity. And it wasn't until Jesus went to the garden to pray that he resigned himself to be found. Hmm. And so how are we, as people who call ourselves Christians, how are we outfoxing the empire? Are we outfoxing the empire? Yeah, yeah. And are, are we... Are we participating in resistance efforts to turn over tables when economic equity is not present? Are we um, are we calling out the the social sins of this country? Yeah. Right. I mean, we simultaneously need to be resisting empire and participating in social healing. You know, what I, I've said this in the past, one of our greatest social sins is the ways in which we have hyper-individualized the Christian faith, that we make it all about me, me, me. And, yeah. and Jesus, yeah. if you look at Jesus, the stories of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus was not to make it about yourself, but to make it about a togetherness in community. Mm-hmm. A togetherness in community. And, and we need to reframe what it means to be together in this world so that we can heal the heart of this democracy. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> I'm sitting here. I know you can't see it. I, I'm recording and I'm hitting all these marks. So I'm going to go back and, and get these sound clips. Um, because I think that's, I mean, we just don't hear enough of that especially in, in 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 theological training institutions whether it be a seminary whether it be a bible college whatever you know whatever training institutions it may be i came out of fuller school of intercultural studies it used to be called the school of world missions um and so i had to learn about gustavo gonzalez carrie day james cone all those came in courses 
that were either A, electives, weren't required, or B, yeah. on my own reading. Um, right. And so we just don't hear this, which is why I'm so excited about your book, because it will be required reading yeah. in all of my classes, undergraduate, master's, and doctoral. So yeah. Um. I guess I, I guess I'm thinking about okay moving forward because you are you are doing the work for someone though as a student and undergrad. I mean, what does then resistance look like in those environments? What does it look like to be quote unquote you know in the movement, especially when we have such a culture today of well you know I can just go on social media or I can you know write a, write a congressperson and so I and I'm 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 not against those things, but I guess I'm trying to think too like. The tactics of the 60s, you know, let's shame the oppressor, at least in my opinion, you please correct me uh, if I'm wrong, I, are not necessarily working against this type of oppression because there is no shame for that. It's like, you know, you have senators now, so I don't know if you heard about the, the what is it, the police chief or wasn't I police chief, a fire chief in some small town in Ohio or something like that. He was just like, um, oh, I just read it this morning. He was talking about how. Um, oh, he was a list of, of bad niggers. He was talking about, that's right, he was right outside of Pittsburgh, and he was talking about uh, uh, Tomlin and the Steelers and how they waited in the, the, um, the locker room for the, the, for the anthem. And he's like, you know, he's on my list now of bad niggers. And so, I mean, it's just everywhere, right? There's no shame anymore of like, yeah, yeah I'm, a, I'm a bigot, I'm a racist. Like, well, of course, that's like almost accepted. So what, what does that look like for people what, moving forward? Because I, you know, I get this a lot, and I'd just love to hear your take on what what does what does quote unquote change look like moving forward yeah, in this era. Sure, it's a great question. I mean, let's remember that that shame is is a technology of fear, hmm. and, and 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 it's a way in which we try to instill fear in people. Right? If we could shame them, then we could scare them. And when the dominant culture is shaming people of color. It's a politics of fear, right? They're trying to institute a politics of fear. I, you know, as as a person who is is sort of in the center of the pain of of what is happening in this world, both as a Latinx person and as a trans person, um, we need a diversity of tactics. Yes, and we need to be able to simultaneously do online activism and get the word out. We need to be in the streets. We need thought leaders who, who can help shape and shift policy. And so for, you know, as an academic, I, it's why I continue to write for the Academy because I'm trying to shift culture. Right. Um, and it's why I'm in the streets because I'm trying to liberate the academy from its own self right so yeah, yeah it 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 takes a diversity of tactics and i would say you know for students especially undergrads let's remember the first revolution begins in the mind mm. and it, and if as teachers as professors if we can remember that we might revolutionize the mind yeah. you never you never know what kind of change agent is in formation at that point yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Chuck D says, you know, the real estate of the 21st century is is uh, is the mind. Right. Know, is the mind. Right. So, I mean, I don't know. That's that. I mean, I think that's powerful. I mean, I think that is because I know, um, in, you know, my hope is in like like my daughter's generation. Right. You know, she has grown up in she's born in 06. And I say this a lot on the show, but it's like. She's grown up in an era of of war. I mean, she's grown up in post 9-11 America where it's just been this yep. constant threat of terrorism and, you know, a world of media, social media. You know, she didn't she asked me the other day we passed a um, some gas station and there was a phone outside, a pay phone. And she was like, Dad, what like what's that? Like, what what was that? Why was there a phone outside? And I was like, yeah. well, <laughs> a long back in the day. Right. Exactly. <laughs> back in the day when your dad had a pager that we would use those phones a lot. Um, so I'm, I'm encouraged by that. I guess I'm wondering in the interim, what then does that, this is going back to this question of, 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 of violence or just, or, or armed resistance or like this, this notion of like, what does it look like to defend ourselves in the face of this? Um, 
And so I'd love to just get your thoughts. And let me just get, let me give you a couple of just frameworks of, of where I'm I'm, go, I'm coming with this. One of the one of the thoughts around this is when we look at this, it's it's like okay, the U.S. particularly, uh, yeah, the U.S. In, in, in white evangelical America has been, you know, engulfed with violence. I mean, from its inception, you know, and so no one was asking publicly at least white America to forgive Osama bin Laden. We wanted him dead. They wanted him dead. You know, we're going to go and throw some bombs and like North Korea, no one's going to go sit down. No one's telling Trump, why don't you go reconcile with him? Why don't you go sit down and have your beer summit with, you know, Kim Jong-un, you know, it's like, no, let's just bomb the hell out of him. So I'm not saying that type of stuff, but what does it look like when that noise is at your front door you know, somebody said, you know, it wasn't love and patience that won World War Two, you know, it was guns and bullets. And so I'm like, man, that, I, I've been sitting with that and I don't necessarily know what that means. But I ain't going to front. I put in an application and for a gun permit in Illinois where, uh, you know, conceal and carry. So I'm going through that process now because there's been moments where I'm like, um, am I going to get run over? I mean, it's just right. it's, as soon as this, 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 this last summer in July of 2017, you know, somebody tried to run me over. We're in, you know, uh, what was, we were at South Dakota, you know, at a gas station. So I'm like, Lord. Um, so what does that, what, what does that look like from your, your perspective? And, and what, what's your take on that? Cause I, I do yeah. regard you as a very wise person. So I'd love to hear this. Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I let me say a couple things. One yes. is, Ideologues who are hellbent become bloodthirsty. Yes. And that is what I saw in Charlottesville. Mm. So, so I, you know, and this country is bloodthirsty for, for other people. <laughs> yes. Look at the ways in which we have, have really destabilized Latin America with our, with our policies and whatnot. And that is about being bloodthirsty. That is about neoliberal capitalism, militarism. And, and patriarchy, those are the hallmarks of empire. So any empire who wants to remain an empire is going to use those three tactics to to maintain equilibrium and maintain stability. So, yeah. so yes, bullets and blood won World War II. Um, and yes, people want to bomb the hell out of North Korea. That's our history as a country because we are bloodthirsty as an empire, right? We are we are an imperial power. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll say that piece, and and also say after Charlottesville, I spent many hours in conversation with folks on the ground who were ready to go buy a gun, and what I said to them was, and mm-hmm. I never thought, you know, I, I told my loved ones, I thought I I never thought I would be giving this advice to people but i was telling these people to read the gospels Mm. to really read the gospels because what i want for people to do is i want their interior life to match their social practices i think that's what my role right now is as a public theologian so if in the end you decide to buy a gun I want you to be very clear, you, whoever, you know, not just you, Dan, but (laughs) I want want people to be clear that that purchase of the gun is in alignment with the interior life. Hmm. So, you know, I have a loved one here in the South who who says, I don't even know if I'm if I'm a nonviolent resistor. And then and then she says to me. I mean, aren't you going to defend your family? And those are great questions. Those are great questions. Every day when I walk at my door is an act of resistance as a trans embodied Latinx. Mm. Mm. Every day that I encounter the politics of whiteness in the public square is an act of resistance to not capitulate. Right. Right. Um, so we face violence every day, and and we have found ways to de-escalate those situations. And I don't know if we're at the time where we all need to be armed. I don't know. I'm I, I feel I feel uncertain about that, and also I feel deeply conflicted about using violence 
in response to violence. Okay, yeah. And the reason I feel conflicted about that is because I want our people to get free. And for black and brown people to be carrying guns around, I don't know if that's going to help us get free. Hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, because you as a black man in Chicago carrying a gun, you're, I fear that, I mean, I already have fear for you as a, as a dark skinned man mm-hmm. in, in the city of Chicago. Um, and if you tack on a gun to that identity, to that embodiment, I have yeah. more fear. Hmm. Because here's the deal. Yeah. When ideologues, when ideologues put ideology, uh, idolatry, uh, ideal, that's a Freudian slip. When, <laughs> when ideologues place their ideology, their ideology, ideology, Jesus, their ideology, <laughs> their ideology in front of, in front of compassion or love or justice, it yeah. is an, it, it is an idolatrous act. And they begin to, they begin to worship the very thing that is killing us all, which is why we all have boots on our neck. Mm. Wow. That, I, I, I'm glad I asked you that. Again, that's just good. Gets me to think, shoot, <laughs> I ain't bought the, I ain't bought the gun yet. That's the, yeah, no. That's but I truth. think we all, I mean, I think we all should be asking these questions. I mean, my, my own Mexican mother after Charlottesville, she said, do you think you need a gun? And I said, mom, I don't know. Mm. You know, and, and, and I'm trolled by the alt-right on online. I bet. I bet. I'm, yep. I was followed in Oakland by a white supremacist oh, on geez. foot. I was on foot. So the, I mean, I, I too faced the very real, th- very real threat of being, you know, attacked or violated yes. by, by an ideology of hate. Yeah. And these people don't like my embodiment any any more than they like yours, you know? Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. So I think about these things. I have these questions. And and at the end of the day, um, my prayers for how do we create more shalom in this world? Mm. I like that. And I also don't have the answer to that, right? So what I do as an act of resistance Every chance I get, I share a meal with someone. Nice. And I sit down at the table because for Jesus and the and and the sharing of food and resources and sitting at the table was not just an act of resistance, but it was an act of togetherness in community. And so every chance I get, I try to sit down to model that as an mm. act of resistance as joyful resistance in a world of bullshit. Yes. To practice a togetherness in community. Wow. That's a good word. That's a real good word. That's uh it's a good place to just say la as the uh the psalmists talk about. That's that's good. Yes. yes. Wow. Robin, uh, where can folks uh, where can folks find you on the internet if somebody wants to get a hold of you and and, and and bring you and get your book on the Oprah Show and on the top top to you know get you out there and get you on the speaking grind where you're making like what Clinton makes two hundred thousand dollars for an hour you know look I'm trying to get that paper I'm trying to get that white paper hey that's what I told somebody I was like look just bring me out once I'll speak for one hour put that in right. retirement right exactly exactly. Yeah, so I'm online at irobin.com. That's the letter I-R-O-B-Y-N.com. I'm on Twitter at the same handle, irobin, um, Instagram at irobin, and then I have a public Facebook page, which is Dr. Robin Henderson Espinosa, an activist theologian. Wow, that's great. And I, you know, for those of you listening, I again, I'm putting this in the show notes, and uh, that'll be there. And then we definitely got to get you back when this book drops. When, when did you say it was going to be coming out again? Or when So it... it's the manuscript is due December 1st. I'm okay. working very, very hard to make that deadline. And then it will be out next fall sometime. That's great. That's great. We'll definitely have you back on, promote the heck out of that. Like I said, I'm going to be buying it, getting it in classes and all that good stuff. Because I already know it's going to be off the chain. I'm excited. 
Well, Doc, thank you so much for coming on today. It has been truly a blessing. Thank you, Doc. It's so good to visit with you. Absolutely. We're getting you back. We're getting you back. (laughs) Peace. I mean, I mean that, um, you know, I share my, you know, now that we have these smartphones and everything, I can share my location with people. And so I intentionally share my location with those who are closest to me so that they know where I am. And just like I was in Cleveland getting a haircut, I went to a black barbershop. They had great reviews on Yelp and, and I shared my location with folks, not not because it was a black barbershop, but because I was a trans person walking in to what is traditionally a heteronormative space. And I, I didn't know if I was gonna be safe, right? I mean, I had a great experience. I will go back. Sweet haircut. Super good haircut. But I live with this ongoing vulnerability of, am I safe today? And, and you know, when white, straight, cis folks wake up, they don't think of, are they gonna be safe? Or are they safe? But as a light-skinned Mexican, who is also trans, I wake up and I'm like, okay, which which identity? <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm a white guy. I wake up going like, I wanna make sure my stuff is safe. I don't want anybody coming to take my stuff. Right. Let's build a wall, because I wanna make sure I can like keep my life the way it is. So I, I relate. Yeah. But it's different, oh, it right? It's different. It's different for white people to wake up and say, "I want to protect myself from the other," um, than it is from me always being threatened in this world by the logic of dominance and the logic of white supremacy, which I, you know, can talk ad nauseum about. And I, so when I think about who are the crucified people, I think very much that. I am on that path, uh, like the path of Golgotha, right? The road to Calvary um, in lots of different ways. And and this shit is real bad, you know? And my life, my life is threatened at every move. Like even in this space, there could be violence enacted against my body. And it's all about strategies and building bridges and figuring out instead of build instead of erecting crosses to crucify people how can we build bridges to actually restore folks and create a revolution where we can be fully human with one another